0: Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. The 2008 Schulman Lectures, presented by Yale's Whitney Humanities Center, address the topic of religion and the Big Bang, and explore how contemporary scientific, philosophical, and religious thinkers endeavored to define and bridge the boundaries between scientific cosmology and religion. In this lecture, Joseph Prabhu, professor of philosophy at the California State University at Los Angeles, speaks on cross-cultural reflections on religion and science.
1: What I'm going to do uh, is actually to talk about two thinkers, uh, Hegel and Aurobindo, and uh, neither have them in conversation because there was no conversation between them. Uh, uh, Aurobindo Uh, whose dates are 1872 to 1950 uh, does not seem to have read Hegel Uh, but uh, it makes all the more remarkable uh, that some of his speculations uh, to some extent uh, parallel those of of Hegel. But the point of bringing these two thinkers together is to link a certain sense of cosmology that Ludger hinted at, uh, and that I will expand on, uh, with a notion of non-duality, which is really the philosophy that I want to to press. So that really this, uh, so that there's no false expectation and false advertising, and and those who came expecting a lecture on religion and science can, can leave if they feel that they may have strayed into the wrong room, Uh, because this lecture is really going to be, or this presentation, is really going to be a philosophical lecture, bringing these two figures um, uh, together uh, in the cause, if you want, of non-dualism. So uh, with those prefatory remarks, let me um, get going. I should say that part of my comments will be delivered extempore and part uh, from texts that I have uh, delivered in the in the past. As I said, I should be talking about cosmology in, in an old-fashioned sense, uh, not the sense in which the seminar that uh, many of the students uh, and Professor Balin and Professor uh, fifus have been involved in uh, probably studied. Namely, uh, the modern sense is clearly, and it's difficult to know when that shift, that intellectual shift, occurred. Uh, it's interesting to note that Isaac Newton, professor of mathematical physics at the University of Cambridge, was also called the professor of natural philosophy. And that whole term of the philosophy of nature uh, has an intellectual genealogy that I think is interesting to trace. But I think all I will say is that uh, the idea of cosmology that I will be drawing on is is much closer to that of Dante and Lucretius, uh, namely a sense of the universe as a whole and the human place in that totality or in that that whole. Um, Because this old sense of cosmology that Dante and uh, Lucretius, among many others, uh, instantiate uh, had a, uh, multiple functions, poetic, theological, um, but certainly also a sense in which human beings could seek a sense of orientation, a sense of meaning in their lives in relation to the cosmos. And it's, it's that sense that I will be enlisting both Hegel and Aurobindo to uh, expatiate uh, on. The other thing that I should probably explain uh, is the idea of um, non-dualism, which I will introduce now and then uh, expand on later through Hegel and Aurobindo. But in brief, uh, a non-dualistic outlook on life uh, is one that seeks a deeper unity uh, among distinctions and differentiations. And so, uh, such dualisms as the sacred and the secular, the human and the divine, uh, are distinctions that in a non-dualistic outlook are very important to maintain, but nevertheless are not seen as final dualisms. They're seen as possessing a deeper unity. And that unity, it seems to me, is linked with this old cosmological sense of one's place in the scheme of things because It brings about, as I will try to explain, a sense of participation in the cosmos, a much more living sense of our place in the universe than I would argue the modern scientific sense allows. Uh, Without going into the whole methodology of modern science, it's almost a truism to say that in modern science you get a somewhat more detached, more spectatorial view of the object Uh, which is then objectified. Uh, But the the sense of non-dualism that I'm trying to push is a sense that moves in a different direction, that says, no, our sense, by finding some meaning and purpose in the scheme of things, uh, allows for a more participative, a more uh, involved um, uh, sense of, of functioning in the universe. So um, I think just with those um, very broad remarks, uh, you might have some idea of um, how I'm linking cosmology and um, non-dualism. The third prefatory remark that I want to make um, is, uh, if you want of a more constructive nature, uh, as a philosopher of religion, which is my main avocation, I have been, as Ludger mentioned, deeply influenced by the Indian thinker uh, Raimond Panikkar, who uh, has come up with an idea of a cosmotheandric vision of reality, uh, which essentially means that religious consciousness, and indeed all consciousness for Panikkar, uh, embodies three irreducible dimensions of reality, the the cosmic, the divine, and the human. And to say that they are irreducible is to say that neither of them or none of them can, in fact, be reduced to the other. On the contrary, all of them interpenetrate and are uh, co-constitutive of each other. There is no human without the divine and the cosmic. There is no divine without the human and the cosmic, and there's no cosmic order without the divine and the, and the human. So that's how closely linked these three are. And again, uh, this sense of the cosmotheandric <coughs> is one version, if you want, of non-dualism because of the sort of close involvement and the interpenetration that I just uh, mentioned. So uh, I want, with those three prefatory remarks, to talk first about Hegel uh, with, with some embarrassment, because obviously, uh, anyone who has worked on, on Hegel uh, knows that, as the Germans say, it's ewige Arbeit, it's a perpetual, eternal work, because uh, uh, not without exaggeration, Hegel has been called the, the Aristotle of the modern world, uh, because probably for the last time in Western intellectual history. Uh, you had someone who had both the nerve and perhaps the capacity uh, to embrace, as Aristotle did in the ancient world, all the bodies of learning that uh, were extant from physics, though some doubt whether his grasp of physics was very sound, to uh, theology, to politics, to law, to culture, religion, art, and so on and bring them together in a synthesis. And so it's a little uh, ironic to sort of present uh, Hegel, if you want, as a little night music, which is what I'm going to do here um, on this this occasion. Uh, Furthermore, because uh, my interpretation of Hegel is also uh, somewhat old-fashioned. I mean, I'm someone who, uh, being professionally involved in Hegelian studies, sort of know to what extent my Uh, interpretation of him is out of kilter with the the modern interpretation, but I'm not going to go into that. Uh, But rather to stress that uh, for me, Hegel's philosophy of religion is in fact crucial. uh, And the speculative side of Hegel, which these days is severely downplayed, is in fact for me uh, a very important part of his vision. I place Hegel in the Neoplatonic tradition, uh, uh, the tradition of Meister Eckhart, Nicholas of Cusa, uh, but of course with a twist, because Hegel, being the synthetic thinker that he is, combines this sort of Neoplatonic strain, which I will uh, articulate in a moment, with a distinctly modern strain that comes from Kant namely the sense of modern freedom, as Kant articulates it, the idea of uh, the Enlightenment idea uh, of thinking for oneself, especially in the the moral realm, where in the moral realm, one is not dependent on the dictates of society or the dictates of God, but uh, is uh, able to provide one's own self-legislation and one's own sense from the moral law, Uh, the famous line of Kant, the two things that struck him with wonder, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. The moral law within provides a distinctly modern sense of of freedom uh, in the late 18th century. And it's on that that Hegel builds, uh, but in interesting ways because uh, he does not as subsequent post-Hegelian philosopher philosophy goes, take the sort of Kantian stream of subjectivity and push it in an ever more subjective direction, as in fact uh, happens in European philosophy. Rather, he takes this modern idea of subjectivity and welds it with this Neoplatonic structure that I mentioned uh, earlier. And so, uh, With those very broad and perhaps sort of puzzling remarks, uh, because as I said, to to go into the Hegelian system is uh, a fairly daunting task. Let me, for the purposes of this lecture, just um, articulate perhaps a few strands of Hegel as a non-dualistic thinker. Uh, Hegel sees the duality of the sacred and the secular uh, as, in fact, being a a rather unhelpful duality. And uh, I argue uh, that, in fact, this uh, healing of the duality between the sacred and the secular is perhaps the thread that motivates much of his work, from his earliest writings, to. to the very last. But to give you some idea then of how important that strain is, uh, I thought I might read uh, from an essay of mine on Hegel's concept of God, just a few uh, pages of it that gives you some idea and then I will um, expand uh, on this essay to indicate um, what use I'm making about, of it for our purposes this evening. So the, the essay was called Hegel's Concept of God. And I say the title of this essay is likely to be misleading because the grammar of the word God is theistic in the sense of a personal transcendent being who creates the universe and sustains it. Hegel does not simply reject this conception, but sublates, or in his word, uh, aufhebt it, um, um, inasmuch as he views it as an inadequate An essentially representational way of viewing absolute spirit. We shall attempt to show why Hegel is uncomfortable with orthodox theism later on, but at this stage we can remark that the remote transcendence of the god of theism smacks too much of what Hegel calls a bad infinite, an infinite merely set over against the finite and therefore external to or bounded by the finite. This for Hegel is to render God a being among other beings and thus to make him finite. Hegel's rehabilitations of the proofs for the existence of God have little to do with proving his existence in the strict categorical sense because bare existence is such a limited notion that to say that God exists is to say that he is like any other finite being and therefore not God at all. The opposite extreme of this finitizing of God is to make him wholly transcendent. But in that case, we cannot have any relation with him. Thus, theism is trapped between the extremes of putting God altogether beyond reach or making him finite and therefore not God at all. In either case, a religious relation seems to be ruled out. The root cause of this predicament is that the finite and the infinite are conceived dualistically as separate and unrelated realities. Whereas Hegel with some fierceness says, we must get rid of this bugbear, Schreckbild, build uh, of the opposition of the finite and the infinite. Corresponding to this philosophical deficiency is the existential and the practical one, namely that the so-called sacred and the so-called secular are split apart in experience each going its own way. But this again is to misconceive the secular as secular, just as it it is to misconceive the finite as finite. True secularity is affirmed only when the finite is not, this is Hegel's quote, when the finite is not taken for itself, but is known, recognized, and its existence affirmed in connection with the relation in which it stands to the infinite, end of quote and not when it exists alongside of itself and gives itself up to the pursuit of its own ends, Hegel's talking of the finite, and is left to its own interest without any influence being exercised upon it by the infinite, the eternal, and the true. The overcoming of the sacred secular dualism is the unifying factor behind Hegel's endeavors from his first writings to his last and a gradually deepening recognition of the complexities of that task led him from his youthful preoccupation with a folks religion to the mature theme of absolute spirit as totality. Not surprisingly, Hegel f- repeatedly focuses on the issue of the death of God articulated <coughs> most hauntingly in the Lutheran Lenten chorale, O traurigkeit, O Herzeleid, particularly in the phrase that occurs in that chorale, God selbst is tot. There are many distinct modalities in Hegel's rich polyphonic explication of this theme. Firstly, it heralds the tide of secularization in Western culture and with it a perceptible decline in belief in the god of theism as far as the texture of people's actual lives is concerned. Second, congruent with the first development it signals the growth and maturity of humankind from religious childhood and adolescence, dominated by the lordship of God and the master slave relationship that lordship breeds. The otherworldliness of this faith leads to a devaluation of this life and therefore obstructs the adequate understanding of nature, self, and history, and with it, the achievement of authentic human freedom. Thirdly, for Hegel, it signifies that God, like all else that is true and real, must undergo the process of self-differentiation, deremption, and recovery of self. It is precisely this triune process that makes a reality spiritual. I quote from Hegel. The death of the mediator is the death not only of his natural aspect or his particular being for self, not only of the already dead husk stripped of its essential being, but also of the abstraction of the divine being. For the mediator insofar as his death has not yet completed the reconciliation is the one-sidedness which takes as essential being the simple element of thought in contrast to actuality. This one-sided extreme of the self does not as yet have equal worth with the essential being This it first has as spirit. This knowing of itself as spirit is the inbreaking of the spirit whereby substance becomes subject by which its abstraction and lifelessness have died and substance therefore has become actual and simple and universal self-consciousness." End of quote. The death of God therefore is the most frightful of all thoughts that all that is eternal, all that is true is not, that negation itself is found in God. But this negativity is absolute insofar as it negates itself. And this negation of negation, far from being self-stultifying or empty of positive content, leads to a higher development, that of the resurrection. The kenosis or self-emptying of God is the condition for his full self-consciousness, a process which in, all its, which in its all-inclusive totality sacralizes the world of both nature and human history and makes possible the highest human freedom. Just one more quote from Hegel. God maintains himself in this process, that is the process of deremption, and the latter is only the death of death. God comes to life again and thus things are reversed. Spirit is spirit only in so far as it is this negative of the negative, which thus contains the negative in itself. When accordingly the Son of Man sits on the right hand of the Father, we see that that in this exaltation of human nature, its glory and its resurrection consists. The philosophical lesson of Good Friday, end of quote, sorry. The philosophical lesson of Good Friday is thus the speculative one that the god of theism represents only the moment of separation. This needs to be expressed, but then in its turn, negated and shown to be part of a process of the self-alienation of spirit, calling for the sublation of its finite mode as a precondition for its recovery of self. Now, I I need to tell you that not all of my lecture will be at these dizzying heights. Uh, So um, uh, let me, if you want, provide a gloss with what I just uh, read. Uh, This passage that I just read, and and much of Hegel's work, I argue, uh, moves in the direction of non-dualism because of the fact that in trying to heal the sacred, secular, human-divine dualism, Hegel tries to show how deeply intricated they are with each other, All right. um, Hegel's very fond, for example, of quoting Meister Eckhart. Uh, the, here's a quote from Eckhart. The eye with which God looks at me is the same eye with which I look at God. If God were not, I would not be but if I were not, God would not be. Uh, The daringness of that claim, especially the last phrase, if I were not, God would not be, indicates, uh, I hope, for Hegel, how closely intertwined the human and the divine are. Uh, It's not surprising, therefore, that he regards himself as a Christian thinker, uh, though perhaps many have remarked that if he was a Christian thinker, it was in a church of only one Uh, The Christian Christian doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity are, for Hegel, crucial to articulate the sense of the divine human unity, Uh, and specifically now moving in the direction of human freedom, seeing our human freedom as being part of the divine freedom, not just in the sense of a human freedom Allah la Kant, self-enclosed and distant from the divine, but rather participating in the divine freedom and in that sense being part of the divine self-expression. So the, uh, the phrase that Hegel is very fond of repeating which in his encyclopedia is that God seeks his own self-consciousness in and through us. It's our self-consciousness that provides the, conscious, the self-consciousness of God. And uh, the human role then is indicated, the human importance, the dignity that uh, Hegel gives to us humans is indicated in that remarkably grandiose, if you want, role that uh, Hegel just spells out, that, that our very consciousness of God is part of God's self-consciousness. So uh, perhaps this might uh, suffice uh, for uh, Hegel, just to give you an idea um, uh, in a somewhat rudimentary fashion why I think uh, he is a a non-dualistic thinker. Uh, But again, the importance of saying that he's a non-dualistic thinker is to indicate that uh, there is a profoundly um, noble and lofty, idea of us as humans, which I would want to also say is very closely argued. It's not just that as a poet, he's spinning out uh, grand visions. It's that uh, Hegel would try to uh, argue in his uh, logic and in uh, his entire uh, work that uh, this idea of divine human unity is one that can be philosophically demonstrated. Uh, With that, let me move to my second thinker, one I imagine uh, you're not as familiar with or perhaps even less familiar with than Hegel. Uh, It's a good moment to talk about Aurobindo because um, uh, let me just ask out of curiosity, how many have heard of I mean, uh, si- in significant ways, uh, other than just knowing the name. Okay, all right. Well, uh, three. It's uh, uh, so. Let me let me just say a few things to introduce him. Uh, uh, Orubindo Ghosh, born 1872. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, it, this is also this presentation is also timely because next month, Columbia University Press publishes a major biography. In fact. <laughs> Uh, one that has been researched for for 20 years now, and uh, provides us with perhaps the the fullest uh, uh, biography written, if you want, with sort of modern historiographic tools. There have been biographies of Hegel that, uh, sorry, of Orobindo that were written by his disciples that are a little hagiographic. Uh, This is a biography written by a very scrupulous historian who has very carefully researched the um, uh, the narrative and uh, I would argue is all the more um, valuable for that. I mean we have quite a number of hagiographic uh, biographies but to put them side by side with this scrupulous historical biography I think gives us a, a rounded picture of the man. Uh, let me just say that um, Aurobindo Ghosh was someone who uh, probably exemplifies the the Hegelian phrase of the cunning of history uh, because uh, he was uh, sent to England as uh, a seven-year-old by an anglophilic father uh, who, even though he grew up, the father, that is, was quite an eminent doctor, uh, refused to allow the son to study any Indian language and uh, sent him to, uh, when he was very young, barely five or six, to uh, a Irish Catholic school, uh, and then at the age of seven packed him off to England uh, to be educated there by a clergyman whom the father had not even met. Uh, They had uh, found each other's address The father uh, writes to this clergyman in England to ask whether he might be willing to look after the the two boys, there was Aurobindo and his younger brother, uh, provided the father sent some uh, funds. Um, And uh, quite mysteriously, the clergyman agreed. uh, And in any case, Aurobindo started his studies in in England, uh, achieved great eminence as a poet, entered King's College, Cambridge, uh, won all the prizes in in classics, both in Greek and Latin verse and prose, uh, and um, then entered what was perhaps considered the acme of academic success, which was at that time, given the colonial relations between Britain and uh, the British Empire, and India in particular, the Indian civil service. Uh, uh, part of the, and again, Aurobindo was most reluctant to do this exam, but his father was putting a great deal of pressure on him. Uh, And so out of deference to his father, he did the exam, scored, again, the very highest marks. uh, But the uh, ironic twist was that uh, part of the uh, entrance exam uh, consisted of passing a horse riding test, uh, given that, uh, of course, uh, the administrators, the civil servants uh, needed to control the empires in distant parts of the world on horseback. Uh, So um, Aurobindo refused to go for the test on two occasions and the examiners pleaded with him and said, look, uh, uh, you've scored brilliantly in your exam, Uh, we'll give you a third chance uh, to do the exam, the horse riding exam. Aurobindo still refused and of course they had no choice but to fail him. Uh, a friend of E.M. Forster's, uh, who was in Cambridge at the time, then went up to Aurobindo and said um, that um, he had connections with a, a Maharaja in India uh, who was looking for a secretary. And uh, Aurobindo then went back to India. And uh, he must have been now about 22 or so. And for the first time in his life, uh, started delving into Indian culture, taught himself uh, some of the Indian languages, uh, and uh, got caught up in uh, the Indian national struggle. And in a very short period of time, uh, was heralded as the the leading light of Indian nationalism. Uh, Even the great Nobel Prize winning poet Tagore saluted Aurobindo uh, for his vision and his leadership. Uh, saluted him as well for the activist thrust that uh, Aurobindo gave to the Indian national struggle. Uh, This turned militant, Uh, this is 1905. Um, uh, It turned militant and uh, Aurobindo was uh, accused of political terrorism uh, and uh, arrested and um, tried. Uh, And interestingly enough, the person, the judge who officiated at the trial was the person who stood second to him in the Indian civil service exam. Uh, So um, uh, he, uh, this judge, uh, uh, freed Aurobindo. But when in prison, uh, prior to the trial, uh, he had uh, a, um, a very profound mystical experience Uh, which turned his life around, Um, that is, Aurobindo's. And um, uh, he pulled away from um, uh, his political activities to the great disappointment uh, of his uh, compatriots. Given his stellar role in the Indian national struggle, for him so abruptly and suddenly to pull away from this was, of course, Uh, earth-shattering to to them, and many of them, including Tagore and and then the Indian Prime Minister Nehru, pleaded with him to reconsider. But um, to cut a long story short, uh, uh, Aurobindo heeded these mystic voices and um, uh, uh, sought refuge in a part of India that was under French control uh, and ended up in Uh, the town of Pondicherry, which was still, up up to the uh, time of 1950, actually, still under French uh, control. And uh, for the the period from about 1911 to uh, 1918, for a seven-year period, there was just a remarkable outpouring of uh, prose, something like, 8,000 pages written over that seven-year span of time, uh, including his major works, Uh, at which stage uh, he had another very profound mystical experience, a little after that, and went into total seclusion uh, for the last uh, 26 years of his his life, but continued to write and continued to um, be in touch with political figures, because Uh, As I'll try to indicate in a minute, um, Aurobindo uh, was uh, someone who, while deeply uh, immersed in his mystic seclusion, was nonetheless someone who was profoundly concerned with political developments in India, and by correspondence, kept in touch with many of his old uh, compatriots. And so I hope you'll excuse me again, in the interest of brevity, for me to read something that I had written, uh, which again gives you, I think in a more concise form, uh, the lineaments of his, of his thought. So uh, here goes. The traditional Indian idea of spiritual progress, the Western notions of economic and material progress, and the idea of an evolutionary force at work in all existence, combined to convince Aurobindo that human life could be transformed into the life divine, which is in fact, the title of his magnum opus, the philosophical one. He also has a long poem uh, which occupied him for the last uh, 15 years of his life. This transformation of human existence could be brought about through a series of stages in which social reform and yoga could combine to create the conditions requisite for the infusion of a deeper and a greater power of life into the present human form, energizing and guiding the evolution of human life into a higher spiritual form. The fundamental premise of Aurobindo's vision is that to be human is to be more than a merely biological organism or a consumer of goods. The human being is essentially a striving to be God, our the Sanskrit word for the law of one's intrinsic being is that we seek the attainment of the divine. In Aurobindo's words, I quote, all active being is a seeking for God, a seeking for some highest self and deepest reality, secret within, behind and above ourselves and things, a seeking for the hidden divinity, end of quote. But this divinity is not something separate from us. Again, uh, echoes of Hegel. It is the ground and fullness of our own existence. Another quote, the seeking for God is also subjectively the seeking for our highest, truest, fullest and largest self, end of quote. Because of his emphasis on the spiritual life, it has sometimes been mistakenly thought that Aurobindo ignored social issues such as freedom and justice that he had been so actively involved in earlier. The fact is, however, that his impressive works on metaphysics and psychology, The Life Divine and The Synthesis of Yoga, especially the two of his major works, not only are supplemented by writings on social issues, but can themselves be seen as the foundation for his social thought. Society itself must be reformed in such a way that all persons can transform their existence into a profoundly spiritual mode. Preparing humanity for spiritual evolution requires that the entire fabric of social organization be redesigned to fulfill this function. Aurobindo insists that although the institutions of a society must provide for the satisfaction of the biological and economic needs of humankind, they must do so in a way that is conducive to higher spiritual needs. As a first condition, both coercion and oppression must give way to freedom and justice. Ultimately, the individuals comprising society must become free from restraining laws and institutions external to themselves, replacing such coercion with self-imposed regulation. Such an inner subjective standard, uniting persons in their freedom and serving as a means to the realization of the spiritual potential within ourselves must be reached through a progressive growth and awakening of society itself. Aurobindo does not see society as constituted by independent individuals who happen merely contingently to be grouped together, but rather as a unified whole consisting of that group's shared and common life. Owing its existence to the individuals who share their lives, society nevertheless gives to each individual life a new and greater dimension. Indeed, the primary function of society should be to foster the fulfillment of each person through this shared and common life. This view of the nature and function of society is supported by a comprehensive view of reality, according to which all existence is ultimately spiritual, but in which the different spiritual grades of existence each function according to their own inner law or norm or their own dharma. The gradations of spirit reach from the extreme of the inconscient or material level to to the triune perfection of absolute being, awareness and joy, or in Sanskrit, satchitananda. Within this continuum of spirit, the ascending gradations of life, psyche, mind, overmind and supermind are marked off. These mark different levels of consciousness in Hegel's, cosmo- uh, in Aurobindo's cosmology. The task of human becoming is essentially the task of transforming the lower grades of existence by the light and power of the higher, achieving what Aurobindo idealizes as the life divine, a mode of life embodying a fullness of being, consciousness, and joy. The transformation of all existence into the highest forms of spiritual reality is to be attained by the practice and discipline of an integral yoga, an all-encompassing integrative discipline, and the achievement of appropriate social conditions. According to Aurobindo, this transformation has three aspects. First, a psychic change in which one's present existence becomes an instrument of the higher spiritual existence Second, a spiritual change in which the higher forms of spirit descend into and integratively transform the lower, and third, the complete spiritual transformation of human existence. Underlying Aurobindo's vision of human life transformed into the divine life is his view of the nature of reality and human beings, a view deeply rooted in in India's ancient wisdom. The salient features of this view can be expressed succinctly in a series of seven propositions. First, the powers and forces that constitute the divine are within us. Second, we are for the most part, however, ignorant of these deeper powers and forces within us. Third, to transform our existence into a higher mode of life, we must search within ourselves to become aware of these deeper powers and forces. Fourth, the solution to the problem of our presently defective existence lies in achieving mastery over these deeper spiritual forces. Fifth, the power that constitutes the divine reality within human existence must be made to pervade and transform all dimensions of life. The material and the biological aspects of spirit are not to be denied, but rather are to be seen as expressions of higher dimensions of spiritual existence. Sixth, existential realization of our spiritual powers will mean living in the best possible way following the highest direction of life. And seventh, such a life lived in the fullness of the highest powers of reality in the awareness of what we truly are in the inner core of our existence is what constitutes the spiritual or the divine life. Aurobindo's vision of the life of the person who has achieved his or her full spiritual potential rests therefore on two basic assumptions. First, within human beings, there exist as yet unrealized powers and forces that are ultimately identical with the basic powers and forces of the whole universe. And that when realized will free human existence completely from the restraints of all lesser forces and powers. Second, these ultimate powers manifest themselves according to certain rules, the the ontological rules that guide and direct all activities in the universe. Only when humans come to direct their activities according to these rules will they realize a basic identity with the ultimate powers, thereby achieving complete freedom. Let me just quote a couple of things from uh, uh, Hegel. Uh, Ludger, let me ask you how much time, five minutes, all right, okay. Um, So uh, that gives me enough time to uh, give you perhaps uh, one significant quote uh, and then to try to wrap things up in terms of uh, where I'd like to go with this uh, material. Um, What then, this is Aurobindo, what then shall be our ideal? Unity for the human race by an inner oneness and not by an external association of interests. The resurgence of humankind out of the merely animal and economic life or the merely intellectual and aesthetic into the glories of spiritual existence. The pouring of the power of the spirit into the physical mold and mental instrument so that human beings may develop their human humanity into the true supermanhood which shall exceed our present state as much as this exceeds the animal state from which science tells us that we have issued. These three are one. For man's unity and man's self transcendence can come only by living in the spirit. I should also add very quickly that uh, Aurobindo was taken sufficiently seriously by uh, at least the United Nations that uh, in response to his call, which is hinted at here, to uh, build up model communities, uh, UNESCO allowed uh, the, the building of an entire village which still exists in India today called Oroville, named after him of course, part French, part uh, Aurobindo, Oroville, which uh, still exists as this model community. There are mixed reports as to whether they, uh, as all such utopian societies, and perhaps some of you who've actually visited might have uh, reports to provide of your own. But in any case, uh, I think uh, it should be pointed out that uh, this was not some crank sitting in his cell coming up with mystic visions. This was a man who uh, was quite aware of what was going on around him and his political and social writings um, Uh, indicate that quite clearly. And uh, it's therefore not altogether surprising that uh, UNESCO uh, consented to the uh, construction of this sort of model society, which is still an ongoing experiment. Uh, Let me try to wrap up then with uh, trying to draw together some of the threads of what might appear to be uh, a rather diffused lecture, but uh, I want to go back where I started, that the importance of keeping the, the sense of cosmology in the more traditional sense, that sense in which we get a sense of the universe as a whole, and our place, our human place in the scheme of things, uh, is one that is worth keeping. I'm not suggesting that it displaced, because that would simply be absurd that it displays the modern understanding, which is uh, suggested much more by the natural sciences and by astronomy. But I think that if you want some of the future uh, chapters of the science and religion sort of dialogue will take place around, if you want, the fusing of these two visions, the modern scientific understanding of cosmology, and if you want this more traditional uh, understanding uh, of the, the whole of the universe and our place in it. Within that sort of cosmological idea, uh, I want to suggest that uh, the idea of non-dualism is, someone, is is a philosophy that, again, I don't pull out arbitrarily, but has a, um, a historical reason that I can only hint at uh, given uh, my time limits. Uh, Namely, I think that, uh, philosophically speaking, uh, the the last 500 years in Western philosophical and intellectual history have been periods, especially after the Enlightenment, marked by uh, a rampant subjectivity. And we are today paying the price for that in in various crises, political, ecological, and so on. The the idea of, of reason has become, uh, again, a different idea from the idea that prevailed, let us say, in the classical tradition of Plato and Aristotle. An idea that reason is not just the excitation of our brain waves and our uh, gray matter, but rather a principle inherent in reality, an objective fact by which human purposes were um, discerned. And if you'll allow me uh, to perhaps quote uh, a a very surprising figure, a Marxist thinker, um, uh, Max Horkheimer, who in fact brings out this this shift uh, in the very concept of of reason. Uh, This is a short quote. He says, um, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, Great philosophical systems, such as those of Plato and Aristotle, scholasticism and German idealism were founded on an objective theory of reason. It aimed at evolving a comprehensive system or hierarchy of all beings, including man and his aims. The degree of reasonableness of a man's life could be determined according to its harmony with this totality. Its objective structure, and not just man and his purposes, was to be the measuring rod for individual thoughts and actions. This concept of reason never precluded modern subjective reason, but rather the latter as only a partial, limited expression of a universal rationality from which criteria for all things and all beings, including humans, were derived. The emphasis of the older conception of reason was much more on ends rather than on means. The supreme endeavor of this kind of thinking was to reconcile the objective order of the reasonable as philosophy conceived it with human existence, including self-interest and self-preservation. So I think, again, I've perhaps only been able to hint at the idea that my espousal of non-dualism occurs again in a philosophical context and a political context, namely a crisis that Uh, has philosophical roots. Uh, And again, one goes back to Hegel, who in a remarkable line said that philosophy should be considered as its time comprehended in thought. Following that Hegelian injunction, uh, what I've tried to do today, perhaps all too sketchily, is to indicate how two important thinkers, Hegel and Aurobindo, provide us with resources For this non dualistic vision that allows the sort of rampant subjectivity to be checked by a more comprehensive, a more cosmological vision in which we should find our place. Thanks very
0: much. This lecture was presented in the spring of 2008 as part of the distinguished Schulman Lectures in Science and the Humanities. These lectures were established to honor Robert Schulman, Sterling Professor Emeritus of Chemistry and Molecular Biophysics and Biochemistry, for his unwavering support for the integration of science and the humanities. Professor Prabhu spoke on April 11, 2008 at Yale's Whitney Humanities Center.